This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman, KNXRadio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. And we're here to talk about the coronavirus pandemic. So you got a craving for some seafood. You go out, you pick up some delicious shrimp at your favorite local spot, you bite into it, tastes really good, mm, and uh, yeah. you satisfy yeah, the craving. It, it tastes great. Yeah, lunch, yeah, dinner. And then you get COVID. Oh! Not good. No. Well, Chinese health inspectors found the virus on some frozen shrimp. So can the virus survive on frozen food long enough to be contagious? We will see if you need to add that worry to your list of worries. It would be shrimp. I love shrimp. <laughs> it's always something good. We can't have nice things. No. Why can't it be kale? But it's not. <laughs> a vaccine is something we're all waiting for so we can end this thing and go back to normal. But focusing on other treatments might be best. Speaking of those, remember remdesivir, new findings offering promise. So we will look into that. When school starts up again, students will have to play catch up. How will teachers handle that task? And will we have sports again at any level? We'll talk Little League at this point. We'll look into how high school and youth sports can return and if they will anytime soon. Disney fans, they are excited with the reopening of Disney World this weekend. But with the virus surging in Florida... Is it just best to wait? But first, the shrimp. The shrimp. Dr. Warner Green, director of the Gladstone Institute of Virology in San Francisco. Doctor, we have enough to worry about. Should we be worrying about the virus on food? I don't think that viral transmission via frozen food should be of great concern to people. This this is a respiratory uh, virus, not a foodborne type of virus. So what do we think happened here? They were able to detect some on the shrimp or on the packaging or whatever it is, but maybe it's not infectious, it's just remnants of it? Exactly, exactly. It's uh, most likely just a remnant of the RNA, not an infectious virus that can transmit uh, disease. But I can hear people out there, and and I'm sure you maybe even know some who are still, you know, they go to the grocery and they come back, they disinfect the grocery bags, and they leave stuff that doesn't need to be refrigerated, you know, unattended for like 48 hours before they touch it. And I can hear those people saying, oh, my God, now we got to worry about food and not by eating the food, but just by touching the food. Again, I, uh, you know. I think that uh, there is very low risk of transmission of this virus from contaminated uh, food packaging surfaces, et cetera. Then that's not to say that it isn't a good idea to decontaminate. I mean, the FDA has provided new guidance on that. But I must say, uh, myself and my family, we still uh, decontaminate, uh, uh, you know, boxes, I mean, packaged goods that come from, uh, from the market. It's a very small, but it's a controllable risk, uh, and we choose to do that. And if you don't opt to do that, what? Put the things away and then just make sure to wash your hands right afterwards? Yeah, absolutely. I think we've all been trained to wash our hands at all points during the day. Washing anyways. your hands <laughs> is a great defense against this virus, absolutely. So are we likely to see these kinds of reports more and more often about places where we don't normally think you might find a virus, or at least lay people don't think they're going to find it, and so maybe we shouldn't get all that worked up about it? Right. I, I, I think that's the case. Again, the way to, to protect yourself against this coronavirus is to uh, keep your physical distance, 
uh, from people to wear a mask. Masking is absolutely important, particularly now that it's being recognized that there's aerosol spread of the virus. The mask can block that aerosol spread. Um, and, uh, and as we've discussed, washing your hands. When it comes to that aerosolized, um, is there research yet on which is more likely that you would walk through, you know, a cloud of it and, and, and pick it up? Or is it the droplets from somebody else that's still more likely to, to get you? The droplets uh, carry a larger inoculum of the virus, and therefore they're more likely to infect you. Again, you know, inoculum, the size of uh, the amount of virus that you take in has a lot to do about with the course of the disease. Um, so again, you would have to have a big exposure to the aerosol um, uh, to to get in, uh, to get a serious infection. Are, I think respiratory droplets are the are still the main uh, the main concern. But one, you know, uh, indoors, indoors for sure, people should be masking. Are you puzzled by the reluctance of so many people? And it's not just in this country. I was reading this morning that that, uh, France is having a a growing problem. Uh, So is Germany and and, uh, the U.K. of people who are just not wanting to wear masks. Do you find that puzzling? Well, masking is not part of uh, Western culture. It clearly is. uh, uh, Asian countries have repeatedly dealt with respiratory infections by masking. Very common, very accepted, and it's very effective. Um, So I think that, unfortunately, masking here in the United States has become a political hot potato, uh, and it should not have been. If there's any one single threat that this country has faced that should have unified us, it's this coronavirus. And unfortunately, there in terms of the issue of to wear a mask or not to wear a mask, is now a political statement, and that's not where we should be. Dr. Warner Green directs the Gladstone Institute of Virology in San Francisco. What if a vaccine never happens? But then, do we stay in this situation forever? Well, we don't have to. Other treatments like remdesivir, certain steroids, asthma medication, and yes, hydroxychloroquine might be the best bets for a return to normal. Dr. William Hasseltine, president of Access Health International. So, doctor, do you think we're getting closer to something like Tamiflu? You go to your doctor, you're not feeling well, you take it, and then you can write it out at home? Well, you're right that what we want are drugs that can prevent us from getting sick if we're infected. And even better than that, we want drugs that can prevent us from being infected in the first place. Uh, That's what vaccines do. And while we're waiting for a vaccine, which we may or may not be able to get, which may or may not be safe, uh, there will be, not immediately, uh, but I think by the end of the year, early next year, there will be drugs that do the following. First, if you are early in infection, we'll prevent you from getting very sick. Secondly, if you're early in the infection, you'll never really experience the uh, disease at all. And even better than that, if you're a high-risk healthcare worker or you know you've been exposed, you can take these drugs and they'll prevent you from being infected in the first place. And also, oh, and uh, so I think that, that those, are, those drugs are coming soon and they can be a bridge to give us the time to make sure any vaccines we do develop will be safe and effective. And do we know, do you know what some of these drugs are? Yes, we do. Uh, 
we can look at the uh, the literature as to what's coming along, and we can look at what was developed earlier for SARS and MERS, but never quite made it into uh, into the clinic and never were tested in people. But one of these is a combination of monoclonal antibodies. That's taking the kinds of things your bodies make normally, uh, producing them in a laboratory, your antibodies, and giving to you in a pure form uh, that fight the virus. You'll need a couple of them because this virus is widely and can escape one, but it's harder to escape two or three. It's like having your feet and handcuffs on at the, handcuffed at the same time. <laughs> so I think that... Um, that's one of the sets of drugs. Another type of drug that's coming along uh, is very similar to what's used to cure uh, hepatitis B or to treat HIV, which are called protease inhibitors. The virus has an enzyme that it needs called the protease. Uh, we know how to develop drugs against that. Those are well under development. And I'm happy to say that many of them proved, their, proved that they could not only f uh, fight SARS and MERS, they could probably at least the protease inhibitors, fight uh, this virus as, as well. So we're well on our way uh, to developing those drugs, and they're being developed in a number of different laboratories around the world. Does this also have to go hand-in-hand hand with um, getting tests pretty easily? Because you said, if I'm early in this, I can take one of these things and it'll make it easier on me. But I've got to catch it early, right? Not everybody comes down anymore with the typical, oh, I'm looking for a fever, or oh, I have a cough. If I have one of the weird symptoms, I've got to know I can go to the doctor and he can figure out that I do have this right there in the room. Right, and that's coming along pretty fast, too. Uh, up till now, we've depended on what's called a PCR test, which measures the genome, the nucleic acids of the virus. And we know that that takes a while. Uh, it can be quite uncomfortable. But coming also relatively soon, are what are called antigen tests. These don't measure the nucleic acid of the virus. They measure the protein that surrounds the virus. And uh, those tests are coming along, and the benefit of those is they can be cheap and fast. They can be as cheap as 50 cents a piece, and they can take about 15 minutes. Um, let me give you just an example of a use I've seen recently of such tests. Uh, and those were done in Egypt where they tested the entire population with uh, these fast, cheap kind of tests found 4 million people infected with hepatitis B, treated and cured them all. So that's the kind of thing we can look forward to. So there are going to be big changes uh, in how we test, how we treat, how we prevent uh, this uh, disease, even short of a vaccine. Well, We'll wait for it, and we'll cross our fingers. Dr. William Hasselstein, president of Access Health International Doctor, thanks for coming on the show. We just mentioned remdesivir, the maker of this antiviral drug, says it reduced the risk of death for severely sick coronavirus patients by more than 60% compared to what's known as standard care alone. Sounds promising. WBBM's Cisco Cotto talks to Michelle Cortez, health reporter for Bloomberg News, about the findings. Well, it's definitely good news. It does seem to bolster the same findings that Gilead had in a trial that was run by the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases. But you also have to realize that what they're doing here is pretty unconventional. They're taking a group 
of patients who were in their their big pivotal trial that didn't show a significant survival benefit and comparing it to just a different group of people entirely who weren't part of the clinical trial. So it's good news that it's moving in the right direction, but it's far from definitive at this point. So Gilead really does need to do a clinical trial to prove the fact that this drug will improve survival. Does this just show us the the difficulty when you have a pandemic going on? It's not slow. I mean, it it comes on you fast. And coming up with medications or vaccines or or anything else, it just takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of coordination. Like this is Gilead has three trials already and none of them have yet to show a significant decrease in mortality rates. And that's because of exactly what you're saying, Cisco. The virus is moving so quickly. They had two studies that they were working on in China and they clamped down there and basically, you know, wiped out a a lot of their infections. So they couldn't complete those trials. They literally didn't have enough patients. And then they did another study that was bigger, but still wasn't big enough to actually get a definitive answer. So, it, it, there's just all this research happening and patients are going into different trials and that reduces the number that you have available to get into just one piece that will show you definitive conclusions. So j- doctors, just like the rest of us, are having to make decisions based on imperfect data. So obviously it would be better for there to be a vaccine so people might not get it in the first place, but uh, a drug that helps people who get really sick, the, the people who are on ventilators, for example, it seems like that is, uh, if it's clear, if we find out that this is really going on, it seems like a really significant breakthrough. Yeah, absolutely. And there was other little bits of information in this release that was also positive. It seemed that some of the hardest hit groups, Blacks and Hispanics, did better on average when they got remdesivir. So that's good news for them because they are seeing very high mortality rates and case rates. And then also there was information on pediatric patients and women who are pregnant or have just given birth also, they didn't show any serious side effects within those patient populations, also very vulnerable groups, and pretty good results in terms of these people recovering and getting out of the hospital. And as you pointed out, Cisco, these were all very sick patients. These were not the asymptomatic young kids who are you know, able to go through their lives. These were people who are hospitalized often on ventilators and really needed help. Thank you so much, Michelle Cortez, a health reporter at Bloomberg News based in Minneapolis. Not only do schools have to figure out how to bring students back with new safety protocols, they also have to catch them up on what they missed during remote classes. Now, that doesn't sound easy. Probably isn't. And here to discuss is Jim Callen, executive director of the Collaborative for Student Success. He talks to KYW's Suzanne Monahan. I don't believe that there's a there's a foolproof way to, to predict how much learning loss has happened. And I also believe that, so initially we, we had done some surveys to look at how, you know, my, my organization did one to see how are teachers and, and advocates and educators feeling about this. And then some of our colleagues at Learning Heroes did some studies to look at how are parents feeling about this. And it's particularly interesting for us on how we're looking at this issue because, you know, initially and with our results, teachers were saying, we don't want to do extra summer school. We don't want to do some sort of uh, additional instruction before fall. And we initially interpreted that as teachers want business as usual in the fall. And how can that be? And I think we've, we've changed somewhat over the, the, the last several months because one we're, one, we're parents. Two, we've had more time to sort of look into this more. And also considered, you know, with, with many of the teachers, 
they're looking at ways to adapt their the curriculum that they have in classes to make some really tough choices about what they're going to teach and when so that they can keep a kid on grade level. So say your your son or daughter is in third grade when COVID hit. And then if when they go back to school in the fall, they don't have to necessarily take, you know, traditional remediation type courses, but rather they're able to have a teacher who who has guidance on how to adjust the curriculum so that they're getting what they need to stay on grade level for fourth grade, but then they're also able to adjust for what they may have missed in the last couple of months of third grade. And that's so difficult, right? Because teachers typically totally. have sort of lesson plans and a roadmap <laughs> year to year that you pretty much follow. And I would imagine that the academic losses are going to be different among children, depending on what school you go to or what your situation was like at home. That's right. And, and I think, you know, another reason why some of the, the uh, I believe that teachers responded the way that they did to our survey was, was that they kind of looked at each other and said, welcome to our world. You know, we're, we're shocked to think that, oh my gosh, teachers are going to have to adjust and deal with all this different sort of levels of learning loss at the beginning of next year. Well, guess what? They're already doing it. <laughs> They're already doing that. It, there's a, there's a normal difference, you know, delta between kids in a, in a classroom. It's just now it's probably going to be more, much more pronounced. And it's something the parents probably didn't truly consider until the pandemic. So but do you think that what, they'll be facing a broader um, array of needs? Yeah, I think there's going to be many more needs now in things like social emotional learning that, that kids may not be, may not even know how much they've been impacted by this loss, right? I think there's, there's so many question marks about um, the overall impact of what this is going to have on, on a kid's uh, sort of trajectory to, to learn. And, you know, we're, I think, seeing now schools or be, districts are beginning to announce plans for how they're going to come back. And it's going to be bumpy. And we're already seeing it. It's bumpy, right? We're seeing, you know, some schools saying, hey, it's going to be a combination of in-person kind of traditional brick and mortar school classroom style uh, with, you know, obviously exceptions, uh, uh, changes for, you know, six feet apart and et cetera. And then there may be a portion of it that's remote. And then there may be some combination of, of the two of those. And there's pushback from, from teachers. There's pushback from parents because, there's so much uncertainty about how this how this can work. So I think we're in for, you know, this is this is challenging of what teachers are facing. Sports leagues across the country have been put on hold at all levels, pro down to young kids. Here in California, some teams started to practice again, but a rise in cases putting things on hold. When and how can we play sports again? Chris Nowinski, founding CEO of the Concussion Legacy Institute, former WWE wrestler, played defensive tackle for Harvard, and Christina Garcia, athletics director for Granada Hills Charter High School in L.A.'s San Fernando Valley. So, Christina, let's start with you. How can we have a situation with things as they are right now where kids or even adults are playing sports without, you know, a lot of social distancing? I would agree. I think it would be rather difficult, how can we safely resume any sort of activity, physical activity, where students and coaching staff members are in close contact with each other? Um, you know, we have to adhere to various protocol. How can we safely resume? 
how can we do that um, without running the risk of putting someone in harm's way? Well, how, how can you do that, do you think? Or did you get close to doing it? Or did you just think that this wasn't on the table at all for you guys? Well, currently we've been on hold since March. We actually didn't resume. Um, again, not because we want to make sure that we have the best plan in place um, to restart as safely as possible. Um, and we've been working on different plans and guidelines for our coaches, how we can train them to resume activity um, in smaller groups, re- wearing uh, certain, wearing masks and, um, you know, cleaning all equipment and having just everybody involved in that um, experience. So we're, we're in the planning stages and we're also waiting to hear from our governing body, bodies, the California Interscholastic Federation, CIF. Um, they're supposed to come out with an update on July 20th in terms of a timeline, scheduling, and other guidelines and protocols that they would recommend to us, of course, in accordance to any sort of local and state federal protocol that is already in place. Okay, uh, Christina, hang out with us, and let's bring into the discussion Chris Nowinski. So can you envision sometime in the near future where, and we'll stick with kids, where kids can go back to playing sports and yet be safe? Uh, certainly not in the near future with the surge that we're having in cases. I mean, this is a real issue with community spread and risk, not just to the athletes, but to the coaches and the teachers and their families at home. So I think this is a time that uh, have faith in our public health experts who are, I think are guiding us in a, in a very good direction to be conservative here. Obviously there's costs in terms of the, the athletes who are, going to have issues uh you know they need their exercise they need their their uh, community they need their teams but but their health comes first and so uh until we until we control the spread until we get the infection rate i mean down to near zero um we can't have we just can't afford the luxury of sports i don't think and i guess we can scale it up right we can go all the way to college where we're seeing programs being shelved and they have resources to to work on some of these things and if they think they can't even do it well, then how could, how could like a youth league, you know? No, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, all the pro sports that are forming their bubbles and finding cases, you know, they can't do it. The colleges are, I think, being very hopeful that they can. But, um, you know, it, it really takes the rest of the country working together uh, to, to stop this spread. And it's, it's disappointing what we've seen. I think last month, we might if we kept going down, there are reasons to be hopeful. But now that we're sort of out of control, um, yeah, I don't think, uh, it's unfortunate the high school kids and the youth uh, youth athletes are the ones who are suffering and are not going to get the chance to play the sports that they love. Christina Garcia, Athletics Director, Granada Hills Charter High, LAUSD. Chris Nowinski, founding CEO of the Concussion Legacy Institute. If Disneyland is the happiest place on earth, wouldn't that make Disney World, I don't know, the second happiest? Since it's opening this weekend and Disneyland is not, then maybe it takes over that top spot. But no one would be happy if they go, deal with big crowds, and get sick. Cases in Florida, they're rising quickly, so the timing of the opening might not be the best. Dr. Ravina Kular is an infectious disease specialist, epidemiologist, a spokeswoman for the Infectious Diseases Society of America. So, doctor, what do you say? We uh, get to the park, we ride some roller coasters, safe or not safe? Sounds great in a normal time, but definitely (laughs) not safe. Uh, Although Disney is implementing these safety measures to uh, reopen uh, the park, the reopening of a theme park 
about the size of San Francisco is extremely risky. I mean, you just say this, Florida is at the epicenter of the pandemic. I want to reiterate this, that Disney World is reopening at a time when there is an explosion of cases. I mean, Florida is in the red zone on its risk scale. Well, yeah, and, and, you know, it's just hard to imagine... Well, I guess I can imagine what the discussion must have been like in the boardroom of Disney. Uh, you know, it's like, well, we've got to make money somehow. But I, I just have a hard time figuring out how they justify it. Can you? I am having a very hard time as well, especially with all the data, new data that's coming out of the risk of these asymptomatic silent carriers, the risk now that there might be um, might, that, that the virus might be um, airborne, and that makes it even more scary for the virus to spread and to catch quite, um, quite quickly. So it makes me very concerned that, you know, obviously there is a business factor here, but people are at high risk if they go in mass crowds and they have a high chance of potentially getting this virus around others. Now, is there anything that, um, you know, Disney World or, or theme parks should be doing adding on to the list, or is it just that the, you know, maintaining is only a, a certain number of people in there, doing temperature checks, um, spacing out in lines, like, that's great, but even those things aren't going to be enough. Yeah, those things are not going to be sufficient, and temperature screenings, quite honestly, give a false sense of security. They only catch sick people. We know that asymptomatic carriers can spread coronavirus as well as sick people, and there's no way to screen those people. And that's what makes this virus, quite honestly, so sneaky. Well, so if if going to a outdoor amusement park is not good, and presumably going to an indoor movie theater isn't good either, we're kind of doomed for quite some time to just sit in our homes, aren't we? I mean, we are. I mean, until we see these cases come down and until we see uh, there potentially being a vaccine that's available or, or something that we have there, we really need to be careful. I mean, we are right now in the thick of it. Uh, the tsunami is here. And, you know, you did bring up a good point, the fact that the risk for is the highest actually in these indoor settings where there's poor ventilation but it can also be spread outside. So I think that people are getting a false sense of security thinking if you're outside in a mass gathering that you have a lower risk of getting the virus. You do, but you still do carry a risk. You don't know what that person next to you has done. You don't know whether that person next to you is symptomatic or not, and you carry that risk. So until there is a decrease in cases, we really need to be careful. Dr. Ravina Kular, infectious disease specialist, epidemiologist, spokeswoman, infectious diseases society. We did, by the way, reach out to Disney to discuss safety measures, but no response. We've talked about antibodies and how they can protect people from this and other viruses, but they're not the only defense system the body has to fight germs. T cells also play a role, and they could be fighting off COVID 19. Recent studies show that some recovered patients who tested negative for coronavirus antibodies did develop T-cells in response to their COVID-19 infection. Now, the studies are small, but some scientists now say that people who experience a mild illness or no symptoms at all 
may be eliminating the infection through this T-cell response. Vaccine candidates against COVID-19 currently in the works aim to generate antibody and T-cell responses. Never have I been more proud of my little T-cells. Yes. Yes. We're all pulling for you guys. Listen to us on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. I've always liked T. Oh, it's T-cells. Stay well. Stay well.